no, I didn't have headphones. See, I, I had headphones, and that probably I believe explains in big why. speakers and loud volume. Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. So my uh, my guest today is Kathy Faulkner, and this is going to be hard on me because this is someone who is a radio personality who's interviewed lots of people, and I'm a hack. So oh. Kathy, <laughs> Kathy, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for making this happen. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> Before I hit record, you started telling me the story, and I think I'd like to start there. Oh, uh-oh. Internship. That's when, that's when I share the dirt before oh, you hit record. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the internship. How? Yeah. Okay. At the time of recording in 2021, what you're about to share seems completely impossible. But back in the day, KISW, how did you open the doors to KISW? Well, uh, for people who, I guess, don't know me. I worked at KISW oh, yeah. for close to 20 years, right? Yeah. And who are you? So, yeah, they don't know me. Uh, who are you and yeah, what do you, you know? Um, I No, that's all right. I started um, I started at KISW as an intern. It, it, it actually was started as an assignment in my English class in ninth grade where I had to interview somebody in media. And KISW was breaking down barriers for FM radio and breaking bands like ACDC and Iron Maiden and the Scorpions. And I just had to be part of it. So I interviewed, I interviewed Steve Slayton and uh, then continued to communicate or call and make requests when I was babysitting uh, instead of (laughs) babysitting. Um, And, uh, and then uh, like six months later, I applied for an internship through a school program through my high school. And, um, got in the door and that's how my career at the radio station started uh with internships at special places you know if you leave the door closes on your way out because you haven't proven yourself so i made it very clear to everybody that i wasn't going to go anywhere until um well i wasn't going to go anywhere and i did i just stayed right there (laughs) all right i promised you i wasn't going to ask you really specific questions but i'm going to ask this one and see if you can remember (laughs) sure so what requests were you making when you're babysitting? What bands did you want them to play? A lot. It was Scorpions and ACDC, Judas okay. Priest, um, okay. Iron Maiden. Yeah. Okay. Queens right. Cause they just came out with their EP. Right. Um, oh no, gosh. actually they hadn't yet. No, it was still, it was still that. Um, and then um, I was big into Pat Benatar because there were very few rock vocalists that were making it big at the time. And, Mm-hmm. They were certainly one of KISW's rising stars. So, uh, you know, the heavy hitters, the stuff that had loud volume that my mom kept yelling. Turn that down. <laughs> Turn that down. Yeah, I, so, I, yeah, I, I, got, a, I got in the dark. I, I got around that in the house growing up because I had headphones. Oh, no, I didn't have headphones. See, I, I believe, had headphones and that probably I explains big speakers I, and loud volume. Oh, absolutely. But my, my, my mother... No, she would not. Uh, she and she may be listening to this, so I, I've got to be careful. But, mom, love you, but you wouldn't like my music. Love you, mom. Uh, <laughs> so you started as an intern. What did they have you doing? 
real simple stuff. Uh, answering the phones. I worked at night with Steve Slayton, so that's how I started the whole, you know, night clock that I still live to to this day. Um, but I and I didn't have my driver's license, so either my mom or my dad would drop me off at the station, which was the uncoolest thing in the whole wide world when. You know, Gary Crow was working afternoons and he'd go over the PA system, you know, hello, everybody, go wave to Kathy's mom who's dropping her off. So, so you know, I was mortified. Awesome. But uh, as far as tasks, a lot of it was um, answering phones, going to Dags and getting Steve dinner, <laughs> going upstairs to the, the music vault, which was a site that any anybody would drool over, just the vinyl and the the depth and the breadth of titles that were up there. And um, slowly but surely over the years, I progressed up up the, the ranks in the music department. Um, music uh, director's assistant, worked with, started working with the labels, started working with the local promoters and clubs, um, uh, listened to a lot of the quantity of music that record labels send a radio station to determine the fly or die factor is just mm -hmm. absolutely stunning. So I would join Stephen in listening to a lot of records and, you know, picking the hits or picking the tracks or, you know, putting it in the, the, uh, uh, what do we call it? The, um, the recycle bin was just actually around garbage can or Frisbees. We would have Frisbee contests for those that didn't quite make it. So, <laughs> and then of course, Slayton was doing disco destruction at the time. So there was the little, disco section that that was in the in the music vault as well that really so confused that, people <laughs> that that asked me that that leads me to a question i gotta ask this one sure so you got to pick you know fly or die yeah did you ever pick for someone to not make it that actually turned out making it <sighs> probably i mean <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, just in the law of averages, probably. Sure. And then there's a lot of bands that we had. Well, I guess I didn't pick them, but I guess one example is in the list of KISW Rising Stars, there's the Fabulous Poodles, and and you don't hear a lot about them today. So that might be an example. But okay. oh, yeah, absolutely. There's bands that made it. There's bands that didn't. There's bands that were un very unique to um, the Northwest that didn't do well in other areas. Being mm -hmm. a border town to Canada, um, we had incredible success, obviously, with, you know, bands that you would say that would be a no brainer, certainly like Rush and, and mm -hmm. uh, Brian Adams in the early days and just uh, many of the bands that come from uh, across the border um, sure. that didn't do well in other parts of the country. So KISW was always very specific to the philosophy of a party looking for a place to happen that we were just we were fans of music of music just as much as our listeners are mm -hmm. or were and um that combination is more of we're bringing something to throw on the turntable for you to check out um as opposed to um saying you're gonna like it right. <laughs> and i'm gonna play it till you do, <laughs> but you do. <laughs> well i know that I, kisw was certainly the soundtrack of my high school years and back then you didn't have the ability to, to stream it. Like I could listen to anything I want right now from wherever right. I might be. So right. I, you know, went away to college and KISW didn't follow me over the mountains. And it's very different. 
a lot of radio stations in other parts of the country are very different than when you grew up with. <laughs> oh, absolutely. One question I have is how involved were you with like the rising car, rising cars, yeah, rising cars, um, rising, you know, the rising stars, those dollar shows that you guys were sponsoring. Um, I got in later. Uh, I, w- I became music director in September of 1991. Um, mm-hmm. and then I looked at the memo and it was actually the day that Nevermind came out. Um, okay. I was assistant music director before that and metal director. Um, so I could help in many instances with opening acts or make, right. or make suggestions, but it wasn't until, uh, gosh, the first one that I remember being actively involved with was, um, in 1988. Um, and it was a powerhouse. It was a team effort from the whole station. Uh, Jane's Addiction, Soundgarden, and Mother Love Bone at the Paramount. Wow. Um, yeah. And how much were tickets for that? Oh, God. I think they were like eight eight bucks, maybe seven, something like that. Um, they started as a dollar um, in the I've 70s. Got, and I have then, ticket stubs for a yeah, dollar. Yeah. And then uh, towards towards the end of the Rising Star campaign, I think they were like $9.99, which still is so stunning when you think about you know, the ticket prices nowadays. I still talk about with, there's a group of friends, musicians that I've known through the years. And we still talk about the angel city show. That was, <sighs> that a, was legendary. Yeah. And <laughs> we still talk about, and we didn't know each other at the time. It wasn't like we all sat together. It was like, we didn't know each other. And I think I was on, you know, I was in the balcony with my feet hanging over the the rails. It's so funny that you mentioned that one because um, I've been working with Daryl Westmoreland, who's a uh, photographer extraordinaire mm-hmm. in the Northwest. And I think his first photo shoot was with Capitol Records for uh, Hart signing their deal, their okay. record deal. Um, and so he's taken pictures of virtually everything. He he found some pictures from that Rising Star show. And really? Yeah, the, the fashion statements alone are just precious. <laughs> but but um, but there's but there's two reasons why Angel City was a rising star. Uh, one, obviously, uh, Slayton had an absolute passion for ACDC, mm-hmm. and so. Um, our focus on, on, on Australia, it was, this was before I started working there, but the focus right. on Australia, um, mm-hmm. definitely went from there. Um, and Slayton is credited for breaking, um, ACDC in the United States. Which really? Yeah. He, um, uh, he was at Fred Meyer music market and found dirty deeds done dirt cheap in the import record bin, um, back uh-huh. when Fred Meyer had that, that. It was an import row and it had a big red sticker uh-huh. on it. Um, anyway, he found Dirty Deeds and he started playing it. And the Atlantic rep was like, what is the, what, what are you doing and what is going on? And a call from uh, the rep in New York and, and uh, Atlantic started distributing ACDC statewide because of the demand for ACDC. Because wow. it wasn't distributed in the States yet. It was still import only. I have that. I have, I still have that import of that one somewhere. <laughs> Indeed. Pretty amazing. Well, that leads to a question. Cause when I think of radio stations now, I think of them as being super scripted. We got a playlist. We're going to play X three times. Not, not the band X, but right. <laughs> uh, um, we're going to play X 
every hour at 10 minutes after blah, 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 blah. Was KISW back in the day kind of, were you guys allowed to play whatever you wanted? Did you have creative latitude? We had creative latitude and how do I, how do I answer this? Starting as an intern, you don't have a lot of latitude. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> so I, I understand. So, that. so when I first went on air, I was told what to do. And then, and then I learned how to push the envelope like everybody else did. Um, sure. I, I think with technology and with that um, data microscope of analysis, trying to get certain demographics, I think everything from um, your phone onto what you stream onto what you listen to is analyzed more ways than you could even imagine. Mm -hmm. And in the analog days of radio, there was a, a little bit of element to that. Um, but certainly not to the extent that we or the artists are experiencing now. Um, mm -hmm. We had um, the, the first studio that I worked in at KISW had a box of cards and each card had a song title and you're supposed to physically write in when you play it. And, okay. and the crap kind of started, cult, you know, clustering in the front because we'd start digging deeper to find the ones we want. And, oh, right. it just happened to be in the front. Sure. No, you know, um, <laughs> but um, and then there were different categories. So it was a primitive version of what many um, software programs do. Right. Just because I, you know, like you keep, you've mentioned, you know, you guys, Slayton broke ACDC into the U.S. market, if you will. That that doesn't seem likely nowadays. I think it is. It's just in a different, it's just okay. in a different vein. And it takes a lot more to get noticed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's now in the vein of viral videos or viral, something goes viral or a concert mm -hmm. performance blows somebody away and they a video up and i mean the method may be different mm -hmm. but the passion for music i think is the same hmm. um uh the one thing that i think is a lost art is the art of the dj or the art of the personality mm -hmm. I mean, we just celebrated I think it was last week, the 40th anniversary of MTV and think, oh. think from 40 years ago, think about how influential those first round of VJs were with the music videos that they played. And, and I, the personalities at KISW and many of the radio stations in the Seattle area were all powerhouses with passion for the music that they represented and had the ability to feel like, you were in the living room with them and you guys were sharing, you know, we were all sharing songs together. Um, right. That's hard to accomplish when you have this technological my Spotify, my Spotify playlist. Yeah. You know, you, you definitely have a one-on-one -on -one relationship, but mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to me, it seems to be missing a little bit on the connection. Okay. Either we haven't mastered how to make that connection better or stronger, but I mean, it's certainly my opinion. I'm sure there's, my son would completely disagree with what I just said. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> how long was it before they, you, you, uh, this is a very specific question. So I, okay. and I think you're probably going to be able to answer it. I hope so. 
<laughs> specific dates. I mean, we're talking 40 years ago. I've I got know, some I know. jumbled I, memories, my dear. <laughs> I understand. I understand. We all do. Yes. Your first time on the air, your own show. Uh, or was, it, did, you, did you fill in for somebody or when? I did. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't remember the year. Okay. Um, but I know it was before I graduated from high school, which was 84. Okay. Um, and I got a call at two in the morning at the house, um, had my driver's license by then. So I could drive <laughs> myself, thank God. But, um, but I did, I had to get my parents permission because you can't, you know, you can't just walk out of the house at two o'clock in the morning. Um, but there was somebody that was ill or didn't show up for their shift or whatever. So I did a 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. a radio okay. shift. And um, I, <laughs> I recall when I uh, got to sit down and go through the show because we would make these cassette air checks of our shows. Um, Bo Phillips, who was the program director at the time, just just said how my nerves take my voice up an octave and make me sound like a child. And, and so the best, the best way to practice your normal range of your voice is to just not sleep. You know, if you're don't start fresh with your shift, think of it as your, you know, the end of the day so that you don't get all keyed up and amped up from the fact that you're on this hundred thousand watt radio station that you've been dreaming of working at your whole life um it's you're so exhausted like just get me through this four hours and we'll be good <laughs> first off you were a high school kid yeah and a fan of the station yeah <laughs> the fact, I, I would expect your voice to be up an octave or more and i would expect you to be um brimming with enthusiasm and terrified at the same time i know that if i were presented with that opportunity i don't know that i could function well, and today you would never get me to listen to that tape. I still have it. And I can't. You still have the tape. I cannot put it in. No, I can't listen to it. No, I can't. All right. So you filled in. You got, mm -hmm. you got a, so part of this that you just shared, though, that you that isn't realistic today is that you got to call at 2 a.m., which would have been on the house phone. Right. Which would have been ringing and mom and dad probably without a cell phone. Yeah, exactly. Right. Nowadays you, your cell phone would buzz and you get a text saying, Hey, show up in three minutes. And right. you're like, okay. Yeah. No, it was the land, it was the house landline. So it rang in dad's room, mom and dad's room and, and my room. So, so what did mom and dad say? I mean, obviously they said yes, but what, yeah, you know, it's, it's my folks have all, they've, they were always very supportive of my desire for rock for working at KISW or being in radio. I don't know that they necessarily understood why. And I do recall a particular day. And I think it was when I got full-time cause I was still in college and I, I got full-time on air and my mom cried and literally, I swear to God, she said, we lost our daughter to rock and roll. <laughs> I think she was hoping for like some big, you know, monetary career that I could get from my UW degree, but uh, um, no. Um, no, radio was it probably had a lot more fun than you would have had um, with a with a, yeah. a degree, and yeah, yeah. Okay, so you went full time when you were still in college. Yep, uh, okay. nineteen eighty six, nineteen eighty seven was when many. Uh, almost half of the radio personalities at KISW jumped ship and started a radio station called KXRX or the app. Mm -hmm. And um, as 
traumatic as that is, that's opportunity for somebody that's just starting out. And um, several of us who had been working weekends because slots at KISW do not come up very often. Um, but it gave me an opportunity. I, I got the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. air shift. Uh, and that's how you that. become the late, the late Kathleen Falk. Yes. And notoriously, I, I know I'll mention Slayton a lot, but Slayton is responsible for nicknaming virtually every nickname that went with a personality at KISW. He gave me uh, the late Kathy Faulkner. It was uh, an homage to Late Night with David Letterman. Okay. But with that, and as the years have gone on, the confusion as to whether or not I am actually alive or dead. And um, if Sympathy Flowers ever arrived to the station, I got them. I just had to remove the sympathy tag and just... I got them from an admirer, but they were. So, so you always had flowers on your desk. I mean, I, I had quite a few flowers on my desk that, that were uh, from somebody who was afraid that, you know, saddened by my demise that has not yet happened. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this was the eighties and we're going to move our, move, move our way towards the nineties. Mm-hmm. And when, I look online, I see lots of photos of you with lots of people. And lots a of people stag- from Seattle. <laughs> a staggering list of who's who in rock and roll, not just from Seattle, but globally. Is there somebody that you would have loved to have a photograph with that you never got the chance to? Yes. Um Pete Townsend. Um, I would have liked to have my eyes open when I had my picture taken with Peter Gabriel. I look like I was a sleeper. Anyway, um, <laughs> Pete Townsend's Pete Townsend's definitely one. Um, and oddly, um, there is a band that's very near and dear to my heart from from Seattle. The Satchel and Brad and specifically Sean Smith. And for all the times that I saw him live and for all the times that I supported um, their records, I never got a picture with Sean Smith and his vocals. um, May he rest in peace. His vocals um, have always meant so much to me, his talent. Um, So that's, that's one gentleman I would have loved to have my picture taken with. When did you start being introduced to the bands. I mean, were you as an intern? Did, did, did oh they my show God, up in the from the moment that I walked in the door? Yeah. Um, oh my you know, anybody, anybody that came to be on Slayton's show had to go through me, you know, I answered the door or I took them into the studio to record their, you know, uh, station IDs or they'd say, this is David Lee Roth, you know, from Van Halen. And you're listening to KISW some, thing you would say those so yeah so i interacted with them or you know can i get you a beer while they're doing their interview can i some coffee what would you like to drink wait a second wait a second once again labor laws you couldn't do that today you know analog (laughs) times if it's in the fridge and the artist wants it i'm going to truck it from the kitchen to the artist no problem times were simpler then they were definitely um so i got introduced to the artist as soon as i started interning there yeah it's definitely one of the perks of the business um i started um probably 
Well, even like 84, 85, 86, I was listening to music and giving suggestions. Um, mm-hmm. Queensryche was coming into Slayton Show very regularly. Heart, certainly. Um, allies. Um, you know, any anybody from the local scene would come in. So um, Queensryche was probably the first band that I started working with regularly because by 88, I was hosting Metal Shop on the weekends. Um, and so I was working directly with Shadow and Gypsy Rose and Forced Entry and Metal Church and a lot of the, the 80s metal scene. And then um, being assistant music director and as music evolved between the 80s to early 90s, you know, we would get the cassette demos from anyone and everyone, you know. And certainly with the rise of sub pop, they made it really easy. You know, we would get all these seven inches and you sub pop mm-hmm. 200 where it's just all right there. So there was a direct flow from sub pop to KI something that we appreciate. And thank you very much, John. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So as I warned you before we hit record, and since I'm talking now, there yeah. the guys mowing the lawn. So you, this might be the part. I can't even hear it. it. No, I, I unfortunately I can't. Oh, and I'm so sorry. so maybe no one will hear it. And I'm just crazy. <laughs> well, let's let's shift gears. Let's let's go out of the '80s and let's just let's just call it. I'll just call it for lack of a better word, the grunge era. Which oh, that word. Yes, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can correct me, but okay. Megan Jasper's chuckling now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? memories and this is a really broad question but what memories do you have of seattle's music scene when bands like you know pearl jam allison chains and all that were starting before they might have been you know these household words because you shared a story with me we talked on the phone the other day and maybe we'll get to it but yeah what was it like for you you're in the radio business you're, Mm -hmm. you're meeting people all the time and this seismic shift in our in our in our, mu- our local music scene happened. Well, I I remember, you know, I remember being young and not having the confidence and arrogance that I certainly have today. Um, and I remember how challenging it was to keep track of who was in what band. There's this, you know, there's this. Seattle band map and everybody helped everybody. So I would see mm-hmm. a band play and I would see a different guitarist. Well, did that, did they leave? Are they, are they subbing? Are they there? Are they in two bands or they're in three bands? Oh, okay. Which bands? And, you know, you track, uh, you know, Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament. You're going to go through a certain track or, mm-hmm. you know, the list goes on and on. So, Part of it was trying to not misstep and just out of respect for the music that I was enjoying and seeing live or mm-hmm. hearing arrive of who the who the musicians were. <laughs> so so that was my little, you know, that was my little self-confidence dialogue going on in my head while I was trying to maintain a cool exterior of representing a hundred thousand watt influential radio station and what we can do to help the bands connect with an audience. So, mm-hmm. so there was this whole dialogue that I shared with you that I never shared with anybody else. <laughs> so there was part of that. And then as, as it went along, there was, there's always been a genuine pride and excitement 
um, there was, there seemed to be an integrity that Seattle music scene always seemed to emulate. Um, An organic musical authenticity. And then, you know, jumping around a bit in my answer, but jumping ahead to celebrating KISW's 50th anniversary, when they Mm -hmm. interviewed Chris Novoselic, he wore his original KISW rock shirt. And so with hindsight being 2020, hearing him talk about the music that shaped his life as a young adult, that you can't deny somehow influenced the music that he created with his musical cohorts. Right. So, so there's a pride that there's this cycle of we played music that influenced them. They took what they got from hard rock, from punk, from pop, from every different style of music and amalgamated this with rain and clouds and coffee and beer and god knows what and and made some amazing music and just i could feel the personally i could feel the excitement the the audiences were starting to grow at the clubs they were starting to follow specific bands um bands were grouping up and doing bigger shows um, we were having bands open up for national acts and then that got people talking on a regional or a national level. Um, the pinnacle for me was that rising star show that I mentioned earlier with Jane's Addiction, Soundgarden and Mother Love Bone. That was an energy in a room that I had never experienced before. You could cut the tension and excitement with a knife. It was very obvious that if the seats remained in the Paramount, they wouldn't stay bolted to the floor. Um, that people were flying, and it it was a passion that the Seattle music scene is so known for. Um, we knew that what we had supported up to that point, everything was about to change. All the rock formulas that had been done and redone was going to be challenged by this music scene from Seattle. There was absolutely no question. It was help, being helped by other regions because Jane's Addiction wasn't from Seattle, but that style of music was certainly ready to bust wide open. And I'm so grateful to this day to be able to have been able to view it from the sidelines or even be part of it. Um, it, it I don't see anything that could ever match it, ever. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't, I did not go to that show, so I, I can't, um, yeah. I can't speak and I don't know if it. there's any audio or video of it. I, I, no, I, I haven't well, come across I, any, but I would have, I guess I just would have assumed that KISW would have been recording something off the soundboard for these shows. I, I, I just made that assumption that sometimes somebody would have, sometimes we did. Um, not that night, <laughs> not that night. Okay. okay. And then maybe part of it's mystique, you know? Yeah. It's in the vault. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, it's in the vault. It's in the vault. It just hasn't come out of the vault yet. And I don't have the security clearance to to know anymore. Well, when you were seeing bands, local bands in in this time, venue wise, Mm -hmm. what what venues are you remembering? Because like, I've mentioned to you, I think, you know, we talked about Astro Park or right. yeah. the Hall of Fame. Before you hit record, we were talking about how my goal was to get into yeah. Astro Park with a fake ID before I was 20. 
21. But you know, those, those venues, unfortunately, you know, I, I think. There's so many that are gone that I, that I miss yeah. terribly. Um, all of the venues at one point in time um, had a special show in it. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly we frequented rock candy and the off ramp um, quite a lot. A lot of record release parties were at the weathered wall um, underneath the monorail. Um, And then, um, and then all the ones down in Pi, I mean, the central, Jesus, (laughs) the history of the central. Um, We could could do a whole show on that. Oh, I know. I mean, that could be an entire podcast. Just, you know, just some of the stories of Susan and Kelly doing early, you know, and, and um, Ken Dean's doing early, um, shows at, at the central and, you know, just hoping that the fire marshal doesn't come because it's over capacity yet again. Um, again. but it, interesting, the, the answer that I have to give is that a lot of those nights I was on the air. So right. many of those shows, um, I was suffering FOMO where I loved being on the air so much, but I really had to be careful of how many nights I took off or, or, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the clubs when my air shift finally went to seven to 10, when I uh, took over Slayton's slot, um, it allowed me to see some of the headliners, but not some of the opening acts. And as a music director, I love seeing the opening acts just as much because they may be the headliners down the road. Right. Um, but you know, everybody at KISW was a very tight team from, you know, Mike Jones to Scott Vanderpool, to John Ballard, to Damon Stewart. And so if, if one of us went to the club, like if I sent them in my stead, we all understood each other's language. So when uh, they would call me and let me know what they heard or what they saw or what songs stood out, um, it, Mm -hmm. I trusted them as if I was there myself. That's kind of cool. So vicariously you guys work together. Yeah. Or, you know, or they'd be really cruel and, you know, call me from the, I remember I would get several (laughs) calls from the pay phone of the off ramp. And I think, no, (laughs) (laughs) well, yeah, probably. Yeah. Would you accept that in jail? Um, (laughs) um, But uh, temple of the dog did a performance at the off ramp. And I heard some of them. <laughs> you heard something on the phone. You gotta oh hear God. this. It's like, oh crap. I was at Pearl Jam's first show at the Off-Rep, but I was not at the Temple performance. <laughs> oh my gosh, you heard them on the phone from a payphone. Yeah. That's hysterical. <laughs> See, the the young kids these days won't ever understand just how cool that is. I mean, because they're like going. Yeah, I know it it's like any show now you got their phone up in the, you know, up in the air and then the video ends up on their Facebook page. And um, yeah. I didn't go to the last temple performance either. Cause I couldn't afford the ticket and the tickets went pretty fast. The, the Paramount show, I think it was in 2016. Um, but with social media, I got to see the whole show. Right. Every song was on YouTube in one way, shape or form. So uh, it, it's a it's a weird reality that you can ultimately see a show that you don't necessarily attend. We didn't have right. that. We didn't. We have, did not have that. No, have I missed that. I missed a lot of shows. Yeah, the years that I wanted to see. But I got to see a lot of shows. I mean, I look back at all the bands I got to see through the years. I'm I'm no no real complaints. I've got a couple that I would. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of bands I'd still like to see if they ever 
came back to the West Coast, I I would think about it. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard for me when you have a really amazing concert experience with a band. Um, it's it's a struggle for me to decide whether to go and repeat, see them again and again and again. Um, certainly, I have a handful from the Seattle area that I would go see any opportunity I could. But uh, well, let yeah. me put you on the spot. Name oh, name a couple God. of those. Who would you go see a couple times? Who would I from Seattle or just every? Yeah, well, we'll start with Seattle. I mean, yeah, who who would you want to see? Well, you know, the the ha- I would love to see Mother Love Bone again. <laughs> okay. And I know that's physically not possible. Not going to happen, right? No. But- um, I would go to any Soundgarden show. I would go to any Nirvana show. I would go to any Alice show, anytime, anywhere. And I have traveled the great seas to see Pearl Jam as well. So, um and Candlebox, I've seen Candlebox many times, and and their shows are just as strong today as they were um, back in the early days. I or think they're I think they're playing the Crocodile if in at the end of the year if okay. all the so to put you on the to put you on the spot about Pearl Jam, and you said you've traveled the seas to see them. Yeah, where where is the most exotic place you saw Pearl Jam? Verona, Italy. So you were at that. I was, I've seen some videos of that. Yeah, it was when there. they it was when they opened up for U two at the Zoo, yeah. Zoo TV tour, and um, we I was there to check out a couple other bands um, in Paris and Pearl Jam. Just oh, happened life's so hard, hard for you. <laughs> and just happened to be close by in Verona. So uh, there was a, a group of radio programmers that were uh, in Europe. We were checking out uh, Quicksand and. Uh, couple other bands but they were on the same label as U2 so we were technically U2's guest at the show um okay. uh to see your friends that have been touring for months and you show up hi I'm here <laughs> you know? How you doing? <laughs> yeah, so when shows were in really high demand um friends of the band would you know it's time to backpack Europe so you can see so you can actually oh. you know, like see from the side of the stage or see them after show and we went to this after show deal at, at U2's compound after the show in Verona, and this is the exotic part, and and the thing that's just so special to me to be able to witness, is it was when Pearl Jam was too big or too small. They were still a small town band, but their following was too big, and they hadn't found a way to occupy the huge stage, but okay. they had enough following to be able to have a huge audience. And that tour with you too, I think was pivotal for them to figure out how to make a huge stage like that either bigger than life or mm-hmm. intimate. And if you think of some of like the, the home shows that they did at Safeco Field, they have a way to make the, the stage look intimate and, mm-hmm. and look like back in the days when they played the clubs. That tour was pivotal. And the after show at, on U2, at U2's compound um, Mike McCready was sitting next to Edge and Vetter was sitting next to Bono and they were having these in-depth conversations and the mentoring that had to have been going on while all the radio programmers were in the um, game room watching supermodels play supermodel ping pong. All of these rock stars were sitting down and comparing notes. And I, you know, I just sit there going, there's that over there and there's that over there. And this is going to be pivotal in how Pearl Jam goes forward. So that 
not only it was one of the furthest distances to see them, but it, mm-hmm. it was a pivotal show for me to see that they may be able to figure out a way to do this. In their evolution, if exactly. you will. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's, that's a really cool story. I, I will share this one. It's completely, you brought up Bono. Yeah. So uh, uh, this, to set the stage, so a family uh, in the neighborhood that I grew up in um, had five kids. Uh, the youngest was a year younger than me. Then, and then the the next youngest was a year older than me. So the three of us kind of knew each other, right? And then they had an older brother. Okay. And the older brother ended up being a, a pilot. Oh. And I, the story that I was told was that he ended up being a corporate pilot for Nordstrom. And Bono's wife had a clothing line that Nordstrom's was carrying. Interesting. And I guess he got to fly Bono around from event to event. Nice. And Bono, I guess, took an interest in, in him. And I, I think I heard the fact that he would sit in the co-pilot's chair, if you will, and, you know, sit in the cockpit talking and having this conversation. And one thing conversation led to another and, and Bono found out that he had three kids. Hmm. And so next trip, Bono leaves three iPod, U2, remember the U2 iPods? Yes. Yes. Three, three U2, U2 iPods loaded with U2's entire catalog. Awesome. For the guy's kids. And the kids were like infants at that time. Class but, but you know, just what a cool guy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, here he is, this, 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 this mega world famous icon just, talking to his pilot, yep. which sounds funny when you say talking to his pilot, but you know, you get the idea flying in a semi-private jet and you will, um, I guess it was a completely private jet. And it's just that you, so you say that story and then, but you're, you're shared that you saw Bono and, and Eddie Vedder sitting on a couch talking and you assume that there's mentoring going on. Oh yeah. I completely think that that was what was going on because just my little story about this guy was that he took interest in people. Yep. So if he took interest in his, in the pilot, yep. You know, you have to imagine he took interest in this up and coming musician with yeah. amazing potential. Yeah. And I and I I think many of the artists, be they, you know, national icons or local icons, um, they have a love of music and they have a love of that musical connection. You know, mm-hmm. Dave Grohl hits a home run pretty much every week <laughs> in in connecting with a particular group or a particular time mm-hmm. or, a you know, a particular thing and many of my memories in um watching pearl jam have to go through the obligations of media be it you know the interviews or going on a national syndicated radio show to preview a new album you know the mm-hmm. the pomp and circumstance that comes with being a signed artist mm-hmm. um there was a night that they were going to be on Rockline, and it was right before verses came out so, and Versus sold a million the first week. So you can imagine the fever that was going on with Pearl Jam. And it was my job as the producer or as the assistant producer to get Eddie from the car into the chair in front of the interviewer. And by then, Eddie could do what he wanted. And there was no ru- there was no hurrying at there was no hurrying him. But what I got to see that the interviewer didn't get to see as there was this kid outside that had a vinyl copy of 10 
and some um, magazine articles. And he was like eight years old. And Eddie, um, Ed, Ed went up to this young man and they sat down on the curb and um, Ed opened his suitcase and ha- showed him his composition books because he would write in his composition books after every show. And they were exchanging these things. And I'm like looking at my watch going, okay, all right, we're getting close. Like two minutes, man, two minutes. And he's sitting on the curb and, and having this full conversation, completely being in the moment, completely being mindful with this child. Um, and that was the only person in the world at that moment. And somehow, no help from me, he literally sat down as Steve Downs was inter- introducing him. And I I take absolutely no credit other than, yeah, go there. <laughs> because he, somehow he just finished just at the right time and got in. But all of us were, where is he? <laughs> you know, Jeff was sitting down for like 15 minutes. And seat was empty in the studio. <laughs> and, and just watching. And he does that outside Cubs games and everywhere he goes, there are an infinite number of those special moments and, and like Bono, or I think that's the neat thing about um, artists that just go from that musical passion. And I don't think they're trying to make a difference in a person's life. They're just making that connection. Connection. And who knows what that eight year old kid ended up up doing. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'd be, Yeah, I mean, maybe nothing, maybe nothing, right? But on the other hand, maybe. Well, and then there's video of um, Pearl Jam tried to do a free show at Gasworks Park that got canceled. Ed Mm -hmm. Ed went anyway because there were there were people from other parts of the country that drove like from Eastern Washington, and we barely had cell phones. I think I had the Motorola brick phone at the time, (laughs) but there certainly wasn't social media to tell everybody that it had been canceled. And so there was a good handful of people that were listening to music in their cars. And I remember being on air and I played Pearl Jam as if the show was going to happen because I knew there'd be people in the parking lot wondering what the heck was going on. Ed was there. (laughs) Wow. Sat down, visited with people, talked to them about advocacy and and how to talk to your elected officials and convey what you want if you want a show like this to happen. And six months later, the free show happened at Magnuson Park. Wow. Yeah. Tons of those special moments, huh? See, that's, yeah, just, and you just have to let those sink in a little bit. I'm going to completely throw you off the rails because you said something, mm. and I, I have to know the answer to this. Mm. You, you mentioned that Chris Novoselic or his original KISW t-shirt. Yeah. Do you know any other human that could fit in a t-shirt from that long ago? I mean, that's the question that's been rattling in my brain. I wrote it down. This I warned you about this. <laughs> You're taking notes. Can. I mean, I can't. I can't, no. <laughs> I can't. No. <laughs> I, I, can wear the, and, uh, I can wear the new swag. No, um, but the fact that he has the, the, and the fact that he kept it though there's there's the fact the that he has it, I, yeah. it speaks volumes and and i know i know a lot of people that have their rock shirt i have mine i have the one that i bought at the squire shop the first one that i bought um and and it doesn't even fit my son he's now too big for it wow. <laughs> a little weight lifting he can't wear my small <laughs> Well, let's keep about about this the, the Seattle bands. Yeah. What 
what other in, interesting, but yet a little bit off the radar things can you share with us that like you, you mentioned that, you know, they, we had the rotating cast of members and all of that. And right. ultimately they all, ultimately the, some of the bands settled down into and they their, locked their in. Right. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the surreal element, I mean, there's two stages that we haven't covered. One is the, the label launching of what is considered the iconic standards of the Seattle music scene. Okay. So that would be <clears throat> louder than love from Soundgarden. That would be, you know, the major labels because certainly <laughs> Sub Pop gets credit for Soundgarden and Nirvana and Green River and Miami and right. the list goes on and on and on. But it it was the major label launches where they were trying to take this local scene and break it nationally or globally. Mm-hmm. Um, as as a radio station that actively supported the local music scene, we would get this music before it was released mm-hmm. nationally or globally. And then in a competitive market, we were fighting over who could play it first. Um, mm-hmm. But, but uh, one release in particular, which was the Temple of the Dog record, it was released around the same time that 10 was released. And then when 10 went multi-platinum, A&M reissued it and Mm -hmm. treated it as a national release well we had played say hello to heaven we had played hunger strike we had done the heavy rotation where you know people want to hear pushing forward back instead of hunger strike and they released say hello to heaven as a single a year and three months after we started playing it and the difficult time is nationally seattle hadn't fully taken hold yet it was well on its way but to have KISW or local radio stations not supporting a local release didn't speak very well to Indiana and Kentucky and Florida and Georgia so it was it was a interesting balancing act that I was continually faced with for bands that we helped break then replaying them here's the new track, you know, right. just to catch up the rest of the world. Here we are again, play, having to balance playing it for people who had heard it a million times, you know, right. so, so there was that stage. And then there was the absolute saturation stage where anybody that had a label was coming to Seattle and wanted to, because they had to have somebody from Seattle on their roster. Some mm-hmm. labels didn't care and they would just sign the first one that they found some but some of them did but didn't take time to get to know the artists and it it was a weird feeding frenzy to witness um the mm-hmm. movie hype accurately portrays it with the clear cutting of a forest it really felt like the bands had gone from talented to commodities and 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 it was hard to see people being loved to death um mm-hmm. so there's those two phases as a program director and as a disc jockey in Seattle, I spent a lot of time talking to other um, radio regions, other radio programmers in other parts of the country and telling them it is okay to play Man in the Box by Alice in Chains at other times, except after midnight. I mean, you you can play it in the (laughs) afternoon and you know, it's going to be okay and you'll be fine. And you're not signing in for, you know, anything satanic. It's, it's okay. (laughs) 
It doesn't have to be scary. It sounds different, I know, but it doesn't have to be scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your, your kids will like it. <laughs> your kids will like it. Yes, that, that demographic that you're looking for will enjoy this. Right. Trust me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, look at our market. Yeah, I had a lot, a lot of those conversations in the early days. These found, you know, when Soundgarden came out with Jesus Christ pose or or Alice in Chains songs off of the debut, it was just it sound it didn't sound familiar to something that would be easy to put on at all times of the day. So I dealt right. with a lot of those. So how, in your opinion, this is an interesting question because this has not nothing to do with Washington State. In fact, it's everything to do with every other state. Mm-hmm. How how did the rest of the U.S. What was the 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 chain of events that happened when you saw? Because you saw it here. You mm-hmm. you saw the epicenter of the of this tsunami. Well, what was it? What was it like watching it as it dominoes fell throughout the U.S. Um. Pride turned into wow, turned into holy shit was kind of like, <laughs> you know, it's like it, it just keeps getting bigger. Um, mm-hmm. I think spe- we didn't have social media well honed at that point in time. So I think the key factors are how astutely radio stations listen to their audience. I think in many parts of the country, the audience was ahead of the radio station. And um, I think the, the reason that KISW was, was always there early on, maybe not to the degree that many bands wanted, but we were there early on was, was because we were listening. We had an ongoing relationship with our audience. So I think that was the key. Um, The, the, first holy shit moment for me was fashion week two and a half years after grunge was termed um Mm -hmm. and uh, a mock version of ed's brown levi jacket was on a model on the runway going for like 800 bucks with the doc martens (laughs) and the flannel shirt tied around her waist and and the leggings underneath the the long shorts and I'm just like, Oh my God, it has permeated culture in every way, shape and form. And I know, I know that Ed didn't spend 600 bucks on his Levi jacket. (laughs) No, I I can't imagine that he did. And I can't imagine that he does now. Yeah, And that's when it became, It's like, wow, is this, what is this? Is this a parody? Is this, have we shifted the axis of music to a degree none of us even anticipated that we're part of Fashion Week? And the answer, in my opinion, is yes. Yes, (laughs) that's what happened. Yeah. That's what happened. Because one of the things you said when we were talking on the phone was that in, and I, kind of paraphrasing you so if i'm if i get it wrong you're going to speak up and say no scott that's not what i said but but basically you you said that the seattle scene Mm -hmm. is probably not been duplicated since Mm -hmm. and you mentioned that you know technology is maybe one of the big reasons why because we can now hear anything anywhere anytime yeah yeah we can hear somebody from indianapolis or Mm -hmm. from you know uh gunnison colorado you know, wherever we can hear, if somebody's doing something cool, we're going to hear about them on YouTube or, or whatever. Right. But, a, but a collective 
musical movement, I don't Mm -hmm. think has been duplicated or surpassed a regional movement. You know, you can take a New York movement or an Atlanta movement or an LA movement or the Southern movement. But since Seattle, I, I challenge anyone to, to find one that bigger, badder, more recent. I, I can't think of one. And now it's old enough to be classic rock. So, wow. We could have gone the whole show without <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I've done, no. I've done more interviews about the 90s in this last five years. <laughs> then you, yeah. and, and I wish I had taken notes. You know, we surfed it. So much was happening and it was happening so fast. And every night there were five bands playing and, and every day I would have 10, 15, 20 demos coming in of bands that right. may or may not make it or, oh, I'm trying out this song. You know, what do you think? Um, and, and it didn't even occur to me to have a historian sitting next to me. <laughs> no. Well, no, I mean, boy, that's an interesting, you know. I mean, thank God fact. for Charles Cross, man. You know, he, between The Rocket and and the books that he's written, we have... He's, he's our historian, (laughs) you know, and and the music reviews from Gene Stout and Patrick McDonald and, you know, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I miss the, I miss the rock. Those archives. Yeah. I miss the rock. (laughs) I do too. This could go in so many different directions. I'm trying to figure out where I want to go. Well, is, do I want to keep asking more about the Seattle, the Seattle scene, or do I want to ask you more about KISW? And some of the things that KIS, yeah, I guess I'll go KISW. Whose idea was it to sponsor a hydroplane? Oh, I think Bo Phillips gets credit for that. That was, it, I, I walked into that, that, that was before, <laughs> that was before my time. Uh, okay. Okay. But good, it's, good answer. But it's, but it's an example of the philosophy of the radio station that has influenced my life to this day. And that is, there are no rules. And why not? Mm-hmm. Why can't we? Um, mm-hmm. And I love that it's not just putting our logo on a boat, but we got more publicity when the boat didn't finish a race right. or or blew up or flipped. Um, you know, thank goodness all of our drivers were okay. But, you know, let's, let's I think it caught fire and we were wiping off the soot so that there were some shiny parts when it went down the torchlight parade because it was all soot covered. But it but it became the underdog, much like KISW was throughout the years. And and we always tried to um have fun and um try and do things differently. And I think the hydro is a perfect example and we would always have have the have her at the bite of seattle and we would ask listeners Mm -hmm. to sign her bottom and then we would blame the listeners if it didn't go fast enough because there was too much ink on her butt to make her you know hit that hit that hydrofoil just right so it was it was the perfect love relationship of of you know (laughs) what i remember of it was it was such a an amalgam of what made seattle special (laughs) well it was such a I don't want to say bad boat, but it was such a unlikely. No, they worked hard. It was a good boat. I know. Well, we just didn't have I mean enough spare that, parts. 
we didn't want it to win. If it would have won, it would have ruined it. It would have ruined it. And so we were rooting for it to blow up, if you will. And we were rooting for it to drop dead in the middle of the heat. And just because it was just this lovable loser, if you will, think, think the Chicago Cubs, you know, I mean, it was just this. And that was, but, but the fact to me, what I remember is that that was what everybody embraced. It wasn't that we wanted it to be the winner. We it didn't just, matter. It was our boat. Yeah, it was, it our, was our boat. It was our boat, and we were going to have fun, and we hope that we remembered the day after we woke up the next day, you know, because <laughs> yeah. the log the log boom parties were were yes. um, the stuff that legends- Pretty substantial. Right, the stuff that legends were made of. And, and I remember, I, I, oh, God, I want to say it was like 85, 86, Bo came up with this- amazing idea we got a mascot we got one of those stupid inflatable gorillas and he had a rock t-shirt made for this gorilla and he put it on a raft on lake washington and so every time the camera spun around to see if miss rock was still going there would be this gorilla with a big ass t-shirt you know it's like and and yes we ran out of gas at at the bite of seattle and yes the gorilla fell on one of our djs so we have this joke of, you know, Bambi versus Godzilla kind of with the oh inflatable gorilla. I mean, it, that that's the magic of radio. That's the magic of fun. That's, a, you know, how can you make an event bigger than life without having to have a bigger than life budget? And Bo Phillips was a master at that and taught all of us so well. <laughs> Well, see, and that's the thing I, I, I think back and, and you guys did social marketing, social media marketing without social media, without social media. I mean, I, you know, the, you said the Squire shop, mm-hmm. right? I mean, oh my gosh, but you know, the, they, how many thousands of KSW t-shirts did the Squire shop pedal through the years? I mean, I, oh, guess and the, rock stickers. Kept, the rock stickers, the rock stickers with the little, you know, coupons on the back and yeah. yeah no i mean ksw did you guys did an amazing amazing job of being relevant i was lucky to learn from the pros um the team the team that took that station to number one and i believe it was 1978 and they got their picture in the seattle times it was a big thing um they they are an example of what radio can be capable of right. if yeah. if you have a passion and if you're willing to try so who was the owner of the station back then was it a local ownership group it was, was a local it- ownership group um lester smith of k smith enterprises um okay. i believe frank sinatra and danny k the entertainers were also investors um at a certain really? point in the early days around when kisw started we were co-owned with kjr Okay. Um, okay. And uh, huh. yeah, I I got the pleasure of meeting Lester Smith. I didn't get to meet Danny Kay, and I didn't get to meet Frank Sinatra. That I came later. <laughs> but came later, that. Came later. That seems like an odd ownership group for this this ragtag band of crazies uh, that KSW was. Yeah, in in the early days, and our our logo, um, our first logo was real like late sixties, early seventies, foofy. You know, before that famous rock logo which i think was designed by a boeing uh employee a boeing engineer um that would make perfect yeah. sense wouldn't it given seattle yeah. i mean that, that's actually like perfect yeah and they're they're 
there are a small handful of radio logos nationally and that rock logo is one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. What do you miss? I miss radio from the old days. Don't I sound I, like an old person just looking back going, it wasn't, it so great. No, <laughs> well, cause I'm older than, you No, you don't sound like an old person. Um, um, what do I miss? Um, I miss making great radio with my family. They were my family. They were not coworkers. Um, right. It was a lifestyle. It was not a job. It was a family, not coworkers. Mm-hmm. And you are, you hope to have that once in your life. Um, mm-hmm. And I do, I miss that. I'm grateful that most of my family, I'm still in contact to this day. So uh, okay. I only miss it to a point. I miss working with them. <laughs> Perfect. So some of the questions I always ask each episode, and we're going to ask these questions of you, but I'm going to ask the you. The first both time I saw a, Soundgarden in concert, is that going to be one of yeah. them? Yeah. What was the, what was the third chord that they played? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> no. So we're going to ask you two parts, each question, two parts. Okay. So back in the day when you were going out and seeing these bands mm-hmm. after hours. Yes. Where did you go? Did you were you a doghouse person? Did you go to Best Cafe? Oh, for for dining after yeah. the show was over. Yeah. Oh, there's a it was a quintessential Seattle spot. Two places, a doghouse, or I think it was called Minis on First and and Denny. Oh, it was a twenty four okay. hour. I think it was called Minis. It was it was in that triangle building at First and Denny. Um, okay. And if. It was Pioneer Square show, came up and went there. If it was anywhere within the downtown corridor, it was the doghouse. And many, okay. many a KISW staff meeting and debrief took place at the doghouse. Because all roads okay. lead to the doghouse. All roads lead to the doghouse. So nowadays, where's a quintessential Seattle place for you now? Oh, man. So this is the two-part question. Ooh. Oh my, I am coming at a loss. Um, Cause my hut. Well, we all get a. Yeah. Um, one, I go to sleep earlier than I did. Okay. So there's that. Um, well, so where's just a, you know, it doesn't have to be after a show. Where's a quintessential, where's a great place to grab, say lunch in Seattle for you nowadays. So funny. Cause it, there's, there's COVID. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Um, any place down? Oh, I know. Lowell's. I always go to Lowell's and Pike Place Market. Okay. That's our All that's right. our breakfast go to. And no, we don't okay. feed the seagulls. Okay. Coffee fan. Yes. Cafe Vita. Cafe Vita. Okay. Were you a coffee fan back when espresso carts were? A unusual sighting on the street. Remember back like I was when a Monorail co- I was a coffee fan when you didn't know how long the coffee pot at KISW had been stewing. You didn't care. You, you didn't care. Yeah, no. Yeah. It yeah. was a 24-7, 365 operation. <laughs> so it was and that pot probably never got washed out. <laughs> oh God. It was that in the staff fridge. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we don't want to go no. there. But so, you know, the di- the diner cup of joe. Um, going to the T-Mar mm-hmm. in North Bend, Roslyn, the T-Mar Cafe with the cherry pie and a cup of joe. Um, yep. 
espresso took a little bit for me to get on board. And once I got on board, there was no going back. Yeah. So espresso beverages, what's your, what's your preference? Uh, mostly mochas. Cause I love any excuse to have chocolate. And uh, okay. if I don't go a mocha, I go a cappuccino. Okay. Okay. Magic question. What magic wand. You can go see any band ever. And at any venue. So first off, you know, it, and it can be anywhere. I'm going to let you go. Where would you, is there a band you want to see? Oh, I can answer could, that question. Okay. Led Zeppelin Aqua Theater at Green Lake. Ooh. 1969. Where they rumored were playing so loud that it started to cause the structure to. Those concrete to steps have a few cracks in them. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you'd go see, you'd go see Zeppelin. Go did see you ever did you ever see Zeppelin? Did you? Ever? No, I came close. Um, I had okay. tickets to the Kingdom show in '77, um, okay. and I told my mom that I was spending the night at a friend's house. And when I got uh-huh. to the friend's house to go to the show, the tickets were no longer in my coat pocket. <gasps> mom won, Kathy zero. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, oh, yeah. Brilliant in so many ways, on so many levels. Oh, my gosh. That's I was, brilliant. I had no, I was too young. I'm a parent now. I was too young. I had no business going, and kudos to her. But um, I'm still hoping to find those untorn tickets somewhere in their house, and I have not been successful yet. She probably threw them away, but boy, I would love to see this. Oh my gosh. I never saw Zeppelin. I was never, I didn't appreciate them. I appreciate them more now, except I'll, I cannot, I will, if I'm in a room where Stairway to Heaven is playing, I, I will leave the room or turn That's it off. That's okay. I, I understand. There's so much more cannot, than that one song. Oh well, yeah. No, no. But that one song. A couple of years ago though, we saw Robert Plant in Spokane. Oh yes. And I've been kind of doing this. Will I get to see him? Maybe I should go see this, this, you know, we, so for example, um, unfortunately I saw Petty right before that Uh, happened. Yep. Yeah. And, and then we went and saw Bob Seger in Spokane and John Mellencamp. Yep. And, and I was looking forward to all those shows and plant. I was just like, "Eh, I should go see him. Not really looking forward. But oh my gosh. <laughs> yep. Have you ever seen Robert Plant? Okay. Yeah. Multiple times. And I was gonna say, <gasps> remember, let's let's take that conversation full circle when I said how I was trying to maintain my cool demeanor while I was mm. getting to do all these right. really cool things and meet all these really cool uh-huh. rock stars. There is one artist that I could not maintain composure in front of, and that I practiced what I was going to say. <laughs> Because I was going to be the hot shit rock star person, right? Right. It was Robert Plant. And everything that I wanted to say to him all came out in one jumbled mess. And he looked at me and smiled in his majestic way and put his arm around me and we got a picture. And I still am mortified that was about all that I said to Robert Plant the first time I met him. Yep. The first time, so you've met him more than once. Yeah, I didn't talk the second time. I wasn't going to try. Okay. I just—I was just curious if he remembered the. Oh yeah, <laughs> nope, nope. 
<laughs> so we saw him in Spokane in a in a venue that holds about three thousand yeah. people, and I'm sorry I didn't see Led Zeppelin. Oh, I am That's, too. Yeah, I, I just I never wanted to see him. I probably could have gone to that Kingdom show. Didn't want to see him. You could and, have gone to the Kingdom show and you didn't. I wanted yeah. to and I couldn't. <laughs> so there we have it. You know, I have this conversation with with my son. You know, the what, how I experienced music when when mm-hmm. you have a child. You want to impart all of that, those experiences and those shows because I saw shows that he will not have the opportunity to see. Um, right. And instead, I gave him um, I give him mu- music streaming subscriptions because the one mm-hmm. thing that I had to do as a young person is save up money to buy a record or know somebody that had a record and I could go to their place and listen to it. And mm-hmm. You know, the youngins generation nowadays have no bound. You know, if they can afford a streaming service, they have no boundaries. You know, I right. I'm I hope that those royalties go to the artists that he is listening to. But watching his breadth and depth of artists and um, taking him to see Elton John, you know, during the retirement oh. tour or seeing Queen or or having some live experiences um they they have all stuck with him so the live experience i think has not changed in power in creating a relationship between the music and and the artist and and the fan um but i really like enjoying that the world is his oyster if he wants to check out a band it's not necessarily having to come up with the 25 dollars for the vinyl record or or you know the cd or whatever he can test it out he can listen to their streams and he can start look going to the band's websites and seeing their live podcasts or performances or whatever. And, and um, that, that opportunity is still there. I love watching him discover music. It's great. What is he listening to? Everything right I mean, and, and everything, anything that I listened to, he got from a meme. Mm-hmm. That's the only real difference is he's triggered to the music by a meme he saw um, the first conversation we had about that, he's going to hate me. That I, I, he probably won't listen. Oh to yeah, this. he will. Um, but, oh. but I, I think it's, it, it was my favorite music moment with him. Um, okay. he was, he turned on his phone and he was playing roundabout by yes, which I'm like, where the hell did you get this one? Oh, it was on a meme. Okay, great. And so then he started talking about how he was going to start doing memes and start using music samples. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, you need to respect the artist and what they created. And if you're going to use that music, you have to understand. I mean, he got the full on DJ lecture from me and it went on and on and on and on. And he goes, he'll never know. I'm like, horse pucky, let's get in the car. Let's drive to Alan White and you ask for permission to use roundabout. And he's like, what? I'm like Alan White lives in the area. You never know where these guys are. <laughs> so let's go to the horse's mouth and you tell him what you just told me. And that changed it all. Where he he has developed a love and a respect for the artist behind the music. Um, and he also loves Monty Python more than life itself. So he's a cool kid. You you raised him. I right. did my best. <laughs> Good job. Thanks. 
I'll wrap up with this question. What didn't I ask you that I should have? Oh, when did you see Soundgarden for the first time? (laughs) Sorry, that That was awesome. Because honestly, I'm going, I can't remember. I can't remember. Um, I can't remember either. (laughs) What question? Um, Because we just condensed. 30 plus years of music history into a, a, a little over an hour. Right. So we've skipped over a lot of stuff. Oh, and so many different crazy moments. Um, yeah. I think you have the harder job where you can ask a question and I can come up with one or two stories um, mm-hmm. to, to go with it. Um, um, and so there's a lot of stories that you don't know that you wouldn't know to ask about. Um, I can't think of a question so you can get that. Um, okay. I guess a hindsight question. Would you do anything differently? Yeah. Okay. Kathy, would you do anything differently? Not a bit. No. There we go. Maybe get rid of my big hair earlier, but um, no. Now, I thought you would have said enunciate to Robert Plant. No, <laughs> because it's a good story, you know. It's a great story. Anytime I went on vacation, I said that I was going to go hang out with, you know, Robert Plant in the Riviera because in analog radio, you could do that. And um, yeah, the fact that I couldn't even talk to him, I thought was poetic justice and karma for that. That's brilliant. (laughs) That is absolutely brilliant. So where, if people want to find out more about you, more about KISW, all of those things, where can they go? Well, um, you can go go to KISW.com for anything KISW, and they have an amazing Facebook page. Um, for me, um, I do voiceovers now. Um, I do have a lot of those pictures you referred to on my website, KathyFaulkner.com, and it's Kathy with a C. I'm alive and well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, welcome to check it out. And I've, I've got a public Facebook page at Late Kathy Faulkner. Well, thank you for taking the time. This was great for me. I had a lot of fun and I appreciate you sharing just the tip. Oh, of the it was great chatting with you and, and fun going down memory lane. Thanks for indulging. Me. <laughs> Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.